This evening we're going to be in 2 Samuel 14. And the last time we looked at the tragic situation with David's children, three of them, his daughter, Tamar, Amnon, his son, and also Absalom, his other son. Uh, Just the tragic situation that befell David's household uh, all in one chapter. And then, of course, the sword prophesied by Nathan, this difficult situation that was going to happen as a result of David's sin uh, years before. And today we're going to look at the return of Absalom, who's, he's, he exiled himself, self-imposed exile in Gesher. Uh, so he comes back from that, and we'll see how things go from this point on. Remember, Absalom kills Amnon, and then he flees. So verse 1. So Joab, the son of Zeruiah, perceived that the king's heart was concerned about Absalom. And Joab sent to Tekoa and brought from there a wise woman and said to her, Please pretend to be a mourner and put on mourning apparel. Do not anoint yourself with oil, but act like a woman who has been mourning for a long time for the dead. Go to the king and speak to him in this manner. So Joab put the words in her mouth. So Joab is a cunning man. Uh, His plan is to reunite the exiled son Absalom with his father David. Because uh, Absalom is, you know, he's really next in line to be the king, but we know that God's plan was for Solomon to be the king, and that's revealed later. But David is surrounded by cunning people, a lot of shrewd people. David was cunning, he was clever, and uh, it seems not only his children, the apple didn't fall from the tree, but some of his counselors was, were that way as well. And, you know, really the best thing is to have people that surround us that are less cunning in the world's way of doing things, but more spirit-filled. I was blessed to be able to speak with um, a gentleman, a pastor, who started a church not long ago and able to give him some pointers. And I said, you know, you're going to have a lot of people that are can-do people, but make sure that they have a relationship with the Lord. You don't want a bunch of people running the church that really don't have a relationship with the Lord. Um, so we see this issue here in this, in this cabinet with David. Verse 4. And you, and you have to wonder what Joab's motives are. And Joab does turn on the king later on, and we'll see that. Uh, maybe he was endearing himself with, to both the king and the son, who he might have thought was going to be the future king. <clears throat> but let's continue in verse 4. And when the woman of Tekoa spoke to the king, she fell on her face to the ground and prostrated herself and said, Help, O king. Then the king said to her, What troubles you? And she answered, Indeed, I am a widow. My husband is dead. Now your maidservant had two sons, and the two fought with each other in the field, and there was no one to part them, but that the one struck the other and killed him. And now the whole family has risen up against your maidservant, and they said, Deliver him who struck his brother, that we may execute him for the life of his brother whom he killed, and we will destroy the heir also. So they would extinguish my ember that is left, and leave to my husband neither name nor remnant on the earth." This is, a, of course, a made-up story, uh, you know, about a woman who has two sons. She comes to King David, makes it look like she's mourning, tells the story about the two sons have an argument in the field. One kills the other. kind of sounds like Cain and Abel. And, um, you know, the remaining son now, the family wants to take matters, people around her, into their own hands and kill him. Uh, so this is the second time David is presented with this allegorical situation. And the law says that the murderer must die. But the dilemma is the woman has nobody left to take care of her. 
and she says, the last remaining ember of my family. Uh, she makes an analogy. She, it's very good. You know, Joab apparently made this up, and it's, it's very slick. It, it's, it's there to evoke emotions in David. So we'll, we'll continue on. Verse 8, Then the king said to the woman, Go to your house, and I will give orders concerning you. And the woman of Tekoa said to the king, My lord, O king, let the iniquity be on me and my father's house, and the king and his throne be guiltless. So the king said, Whoever says anything to you, bring him to me, and he shall not touch you any more. Then she said, Please let the king remember the Lord your God, and do not permit the avenger of blood to destroy any more, lest they destroy my son. And he said, As the Lord lives, not one hair of your son shall fall to the ground. So King David uses his monarchical powers to protect the woman and her remaining son. And the woman says one more thing, one more thing, uh, and David assures her that everything is going to be well. Verse 12. Then the woman said, Please let your maidservant speak another word to my lord the king. And he said, Say on. And the woman said, Why then have you schemed such a thing against the people of God? For the king speaks this thing as one who is guilty, and that the king does not bring his banished one home again. So now the true purpose is revealed. For we will surely die and become like water spilled on the ground, which cannot be gathered up again. Yet God does not take away a life, but he devises means so that his banished ones are not expelled from him. Now therefore I have come to speak of this thing to my lord the king, because the people have made me afraid. And your maidservant said, I will now speak to the king. It may be that the king will perform the request of his maidservant. For the king will hear and deliver his maidservant from the hand of the man who would destroy me and my son together uh, from the inheritance of God. Your maidservant said, The word of my lord the king will now be comforting. For as the angel of God, so is my lord the king in discerning good and evil. And may the lord be, your God be with you. So this woman... She reveals her purpose. It was a made-up story, and she's concerned because the king's son Absalom is in exile, and in a sense, he would be cheating the Israelites not to bring home the prince and you know make things right again. So she uses this logic on him. Now, this is really a hard portion of Scripture to discern. I think so, because you're really not sure... She doing the right thing, it looks nice, there's a reconciliation, but I have to tell you this, in the next chapter, it's going to be a, a, a catastrophe for the kingdom because Absalom doesn't repent. Now, I'm going to talk about repentance, and repentance can seem like a scary word. Just like, you know, churches for some reason over the years have frightened people to not come because of sin and repentance. But I think the more we understand what's going on here, the more at ease we are. You know, Jesus died for my sins. However, when I commit sins, I have to ask for forgiveness. So repentance is something simple as you're, you're doing something that's wrong and you catch yourself and you realize, no, I'm a Christian. I shouldn't be doing that. And you, you kind of shoot one up to the Lord and say, you know what, Lord, that was wrong. I have a change of heart. I have a change of mind. I don't want to go down that direction. It, it's really as simple as catching ourselves when we go down the wrong path or being convicted by God's Holy Spirit and turning around. And that's what repentance really indicates. You're going in one direction, you have a change, you, you completely turn the ship around. Sometimes it takes a while to turn the ship around, uh, but others go.
go quickly. We, we catch ourselves or a friend says something to us and we're immediately convicted. And maybe we have to repent to a friend or a loved one. And then in addition to that, any sin is, is going to be repentance towards God. You know, usually I, I, at the end of the day, I reflect and, you know, it could be during the day that I repent. But at the end of the day, before I go to bed, I reflect and I'm like, yeah, Lord, that, was, that wasn't the best thing I could have done. That wasn't the best uh, witness I could have been. It's, it's repentance, right? You understand that relationship. It's not scary. It really isn't. Even sin. When I understand my sin, it's damaging to me, right? It's not that God wants to be mean and he sets us free with free choice and then and whenever we make a bad choice, he wants to smack us. You know, sin is hurtful to me as well and it's hurtful to you. So we're going to go into some of these ideas, but... <clears throat> Let's look at this situation. We have to lay aside a few things. Number one, it wasn't that Absalom and Amnon were in the field, and it was the heat of the passion. And we even see this in our criminal code, uh, New, Jer- New Jersey criminal code 2C, uh, whatever, uh, 11, uh, the different uh, crimes that are committed. But we see that there's different gradations depending on how the, the murder was committed. Sometimes people commit murder negligently because of carelessness sometimes people do it in the heat of passion now i'm going with increasing severity and then sometimes murder is really premeditated i mean some people will there was just a woman who got busted uh, she talked to an undercover cop thought he was a hitman about this plan to kill her husband okay that's that's a problem you know that's a that's a big one that's up there pretty high but the point being that the thing with Amnon, Absalom waited for a long time and he planned this out. It wasn't the two were in the field and it was a heat of passion. So there's difficulties with her allegory. There's difficulties with this story. Remember, the Bible records everything, even if somebody does something in error and says, okay, the Lord said to do it. Bible records all of it, right? And the truth always comes out. But laying all that aside, what's really, what, what I can pull out of this, put, put the, the woman in the, Joab and the allegory aside, one thing I can pull out of this is the fact that sometimes we're in a situation and we're not seeing it clearly. And sometimes it takes a person from the outside who's not in the middle of it to help us. And listen, we all benefit of having good Christian brothers and sisters so that we're in the middle of something and it's a crisis and we can't think straight. There's somebody who can say, well, I'm looking at this from the outside. And I've been blessed many a times to be able to help people. But then there's also times where I may be in the middle of something and I call a solid brother in the Lord and I ask them what they think about the situation. So keep that in mind. It's always good to, you know, again, laying the situation aside. Uh, the other thing that we look at is that here's the, the dilemma. This person is a murderer uh, in the allegory, also Absalom, and uh, they need to be dealt with. There needs to be justice. And Kings could pardon, things happen like that. But truly, and we covered this on Sunday, 2 Corinthians 5.21, right? God made the Son who knew no sin to become sin for us, that we might be the righteousness of God, this switching of identities. So Jesus was the only one who could forgive sins, but also not trample all over God's justice system. What is this? You're just giving out pardons to everybody, Jesus? No. I took that on the cross. So that's important to look at. Um, There's always a dilemma with this because God is a just God. But in Jesus Christ, we see that all, everybody, all the parties are happy. God is happy because somebody paid. 
and, and rightly so. He's the God of justice and perfection. But we're happy too because we're not going to hell. Jesus took my sin on the cross. That is awesome. And all I have to do is believe in him. And man, it's, it's a switching of identities. It's awesome. The third thing is that the Bible records, again, all information. We have to look at the situation in light of repentance and restoration. Um, 1 Corinthians 5 is a great chapter to read, dealing with an unrepentant person who claims to be a brother or sister in the, in the Lord. And if you read 1 Corinthians 5, not a lot of people are willing to do this. But there is a, a time of separation. Um, and actually, it's, the Apostle Paul says, it's better to hang out with somebody in the world who doesn't know Jesus, and you're trying to win them up to, to Christ, and make, they're a sinner, it's better to be with that person than be with a person, a brother, somebody who calls themselves a brother or sister, and is a slanderer or a, a, a reputation besmircher. There's a time to distance ourselves from that person. You can find that in 1 Corinthians 5 as well. And we'll see what unrepentance does uh, with Absalom in the next chapter. Almost destroys the entire kingdom. And the last thing is Amnon, remember Amnon raped his sister. David did nothing. So Absalom lays in wait for him and kills Amnon. If David would have dealt with Amnon, probably would have had the situation with Absalom. So he might have spared at least one of his sons in that situation. And again, David was in sin. David, but David was forgiven for that sin. And I'll tell you this. I've been forgiven for sin, and I'm clean before the Lord, but if it involves other people... The situation has to play itself out. You know, we, we're going to have to deal with the results of that, even though we're completely forgiven. You know, we, God will forgive us, but that's, it often has to play out. And this is what sin does. It causes major confusion. There's confusion. David doesn't know what to do. He was a great decision maker. He was sharp as a whip. He's clever. He's cunning. But after this whole thing with Bathsheba and, uh, and David and, and the destruction that it causes, David... He's not reading into things. He's, uh, he's not being very discerning. He's pretty much hands-off with his kids, hoping that the next you know, thing doesn't blow up. But it, it happens again in, in Absalom and Adonijah, and we'll look at that. Uh, so that's what sin does. Verse 18. Then the king answered and said to the woman, Please do not hide from me anything that I ask you. And the woman said, Please let my lord, the king, speak. And the king said, Is the hand of Joab with you in all this? It was becoming obvious. And the woman answered and said, As you live, my lord, the king, no one can turn to the right hand or to the left from anything that the lord, my lord, the king, has spoken. But your servant Joab commanded me, and he put all these words in the mouth of your maidservant. To bring about this change of affairs, your servant Job has done this thing, Joab. But my lord is wise, according to the wisdom of the angel of God, to know all things that are in the earth. And the king said to Joab, All right, I have granted this thing. Go therefore, bring back the young man, Absalom. So David figures out it's becoming extremely obvious what's going on here. He figures Joab's behind it. The woman admits it, and David says, Okay, I'll pardon him. I'm going to ask us to turn to Luke 17, 3 through 4. Now you might say to me, Well, how do you know that Absalom didn't repent. There's, and I'm going to cover this later on, there's fruits of repentance. Number one, as we go through this in the next chapter, we don't see that Absalom makes a sacrifice. We don't see him going to God. 
we don't see a change in heart because his next step, as he w waited for, to kill his brother Amnon, he also waited to take the kingdom from his father David. So Luke 17, 3 through 4. It says, Jesus, and this comes from Jesus, take heed to yourselves if your brother sins against you, rebuke him. And if he repents, conditional statement, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in a day, and seven times in a day returns to you saying, I repent, you shall forgive him. And I, su I submit, it's not just the word, it's an attitude of the heart. Unfortunately, there's too many Christians that throw cliches around and they don't know their Bibles. There must be repentance. Because what happens is you, if, if, it, if it's a grievous sin and there's no repentance, which means change, then what happens is you start to build a house on a faulty foundation. And then what happens to that house? So the Bible's very clear. It's kind of funny because I'm trying to think, we go over the Gospel of Luke, Matthew, and it, it spoke about, and Jesus was around preaching repentance. And, and we don't see that that much in the Gospel. So when I read that, I kind of perked up. Well, you think that that's just for John the Baptist. Jesus, Jesus was serious about repentance. Remember, within relationships, you know, sometimes people are manipulative, I hate to say it, and sometimes don't even realize that they're being manipulative. Uh, and it can, it can hurt a lot of people. There needs to be repentance, especially in the church. Verse 22. Then Joab fell to the ground on his face and bowed himself and thanked the king. And Joab said, Today your servant knows that I have found favor in your sight, my lord, O king, and that the king has fulfilled the request of his servant. And Joab arose and went to Geshur and brought Absalom to Jerusalem. And the king said, Let him return to his own house, but do not let him see my face. So Absalom returned to his own house, but did not see the king's face. Uh, so obviously Joab goes to get Absalom back. And, you know, you wonder sometimes, what were people thinking? What was David thinking? He goes, he knows his son committed murder and it seems like he, he was pampering his children and, and allowing them to go this way. And not just one, all of them. So it, it's almost like he's splitting hairs here. He wants to keep them so-called under house arrest. Not let them get, get around, not let them enjoy the, uh, you know, the manifestations of, of royalty and such. But he, he's kind of under this house arrest. And every leader uh, has to be somewhat concerned with how, who the people they're leading how that person's leadership is perceived. Now, not overly concerned, because there's a word for that, and that word is politician. <laughs> Politicians go by public opinion polls. They want to get reelected. They want to see what's the pulse of my district that I'm serving. And, and listen, there's a lot of good politicians out there, but they tend to be moved. And, and they'll, they'll run on some platform, and they'll say, this is what I'm going to do. And then when they get in office, if the winds change, They'll think, gee, I've got to get reelected, so they'll change, even though they promise to do certain things. Uh, so a good leader is not a leader that's overly concerned about their constituents. They should be doing the right thing above all things, but they should be somewhat concerned about their constituents. So I think David here is, he, he's really having problems. I'm, I'm feeling for him in this situation. He's like, I've been forgiven, but why is everything so difficult now? You see what I'm saying? Um, verse 25. Now in all Israel there was no one who was praised as much as Absalom for his good looks. 
From the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, there was no blemish in him. And when he cut the hair of his head at the end of every year, he cut it because it was heavy on him. When he cut it, he weighed the hair of his head at 200 shekels, like about five pounds, according to the king's standard. To Absalom were born three sons and one daughter whose name was Tamar. She was a woman of beautiful appearance. You might ask yourself, what do we care about how good-looking Absalom was and his heavy hair that he had to cut every year? <laughs> you know? But it tells you something about Absalom and it tells you something about the children of Israel. And there's a few things I want to mention here. Number one, he named his daughter Tamar, named after his sister who was assaulted, who, because of that, he killed his brother Amnon. So instead of moving past this, he's going to put it in everybody's face and say, I named my daughter Tamar. Remember me? I killed Absalom. Just speculation. But uh, here's a guy who basically is going to do what he wants to do. And we'll see that in the coming chapters. Uh, he's good looking. The people follow him. And maybe children of Israel, to the, to the large part, don't really care so much what he's done wrong. He's just a good looking and charismatic guy. You know, David's getting older. Now people think. But later on, it causes a rebellion. And this is, you know, you've heard the term before, cult of personality. A lot of dictators have this. People just start following them. People love to follow a leader, and they don't care sometimes if they're a dictator. But I will tell you this, that we're starting to see a lot of this in our culture, and unfortunately, we're starting to see a lot of this in ministry and in the church. It's a cult of personality. I went to the East Coast Pastors Conference, and one of the things they said was, don't let the people follow you. Don't let it be about your personality. And I got to tell you, even in this church, we have a lot of great guys here, and, and I give them opportunity, elders, pastors, to preach. I don't need to be the only one up here speaking. It isn't about me. It's about what the Lord's doing in this church. But I will tell you that a lot of Christians, and I hear the things that they say, you know, when they're watching this guy on TV, it was bad doctrine. Yeah, but he speaks so, so wonderfully, and, and he's so handsome, and and I'm listening to this, and you're telling me this. It's weird, but it's, it's common. See, that's the problem. So I think that there's a reason that this is sandwiched in here. Because it speaks a lot to the way the children of Israel were okay following this guy, and how some of them jumped ship away from David and went into Absalom's camp. You know, this, this, this horse is, is, is riding fast. That one's kind of getting old. Maybe we should, you know, get onto the fast-moving horse. So I don't want to beat it to death, but um, it, it's kind of interesting. I don't think anything's changed in a few thousand years, personally. 28. And Absalom dwelt two full years in Jerusalem, but did not see the king's face. Therefore Absalom sent for Joab to send him to the king, but he would not come to him. And when he sent again the second time, he would not come. So he said to his servants, See, Joab's field is near mine, and he has barley there. Go set it on fire. <laughs> yeah, and Absalom's servants set the fields on fire. We know somebody else who did that. Remember Samson? Just whatever he wanted to do, he did. Then Joab arose and came to Absalom's house and said to him, Why have your servants set my field on fire? And Absalom answered Joab, Look, I sent to you saying, Come here, so that I may send to you the king to say, Why have I come from Geshur? It would be better for me to still be there. Now therefore, let me see the king's face, but if there is any iniquity in me, let him execute me. So Joab went to the king and told him, 
And when he had called for Absalom, he came to the king and bowed himself on his face to the ground before the king. Then the king kissed Absalom. Absalom's getting tired of not seeing the king. Maybe he's getting cabin fever. Maybe he's going stir crazy. So he has this bright idea. I'll get their attention. I'll set Joab's fields on fire. And that certainly got him attention. Um, he didn't want to stagnate. He would have rather been back in Geshur. Again, I don't want to sound like I'm picking on Absalom, but he, he dies an ignominious death, uh, you know, a shameful death. Um, a lot of it's motivated by his own pride. Uh, and again, he's just going to do what he wants to do. And, you know, when, when they say things in the scripture, again, not to read too much into it, but he says, if there's any iniquity in, iniquity in me, let him execute me. He knew that his father wasn't going to execute him. So I don't even know if that was genuine. Okay? So this is what's happening here. Uh, again, Absalom's just going to do whatever he wants and doesn't care. Not a real spirit of humility. I don't know if there's a spirit of repentance in there. So as we wrap this up, we look at David. David murdered. And David immediately, upon being faced with his sin, was repentant. Immediately. God forgave him. David learned his lesson. And it looks like the repentance took, so to speak. It, it, it came out in his behavior, in his attitude. Um, he bore fruits of repentance. Where to bear fruits as Christians. When we bear fruits of repentance, when we've done really, something really wrong and we repent, there, there should be some change. There should be some manifestation, some fruit. And David had that. Now we look at Absalom. He also murdered. Doesn't appear he was repentant. Was forgiven by the king, but waited for an opportune time, remember, to shed the blood of his countrymen over a power grab. One of the problems of the aggregate church, and I say the church in general, is, you know, a lack of repentance. And part of that is because a lot of pulpits aren't preaching about sin. They're choosing their favorite passages. You can go to some churches 10 years and not hear about sin, hell, judgment, the blood of the cross, none of that stuff. 10 years. I don't know people who have. So, of course, who's going to talk about repentance when nobody sins? We've done nothing wrong. And I've got to tell you, people from the outside don't want to come to church if they come into a church because people who don't repent usually have a very haughty attitude. You get away with something, oh, I got away with that. You do something again, you get away, and you have this, this, this kind of idea that goes on. But it hurts the body, it hurts the sinner, and it hurts those on the outside who we're supposed to be a witness to. I've got to tell you this, I've been in sin, and I sin every day. When I've been in sin, like I mean a, a, in a, a time of sin, an era that, you know, it's just this thing going on, it's definitely clouded my judgment, I'll tell you that firsthand. It's caused lasting ramifications, although I was forgiven. All right? Some of those ramifications lasted for years. All I can say is in conclusion is, we always benefit from doing it God's way, and that's why this is in here. This isn't to terrify us. The, the really cool thing about us is we get to read about all the mistakes people made in the past. I don't know if they had some, you know, they had the law, but we get to see all the different ways that these people messed up and sinned and what happened to them as a result of it. So in conclusion, whether it's an individual as a church or as a church, we always benefit from doing it God's way. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you for your word and, and this example. Um, 
It's just neat to see just all these different themes, all these concepts that you want us to learn, that you want us to know. And I suppose I could say thank you for us really having no excuse to see those that have gone before.